like to follow along this morning in the scripture reading. It's in Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 29. That's Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 26. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow, he himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. It is great to be here today and to be able to worship God, and we want to welcome everyone, those of you who are visiting with us, and I know that we have several. We want you to know that we're glad that you're here, and we hope that you feel welcome, and if there's anything that we can do for you, any questions we might be able to answer, or perhaps some way we might be able to serve you, then certainly please make that known to us, because we would, we would love to do it. I hope that you have your Bibles with you, and if you've not already, I invite you to open them to Mark chapter 4. We'll be studying the context that Steve read for us just a moment ago, Mark chapter 4, verse 26 through 29. Upon his ascension into heaven, Jesus uttered the following words, Go into all the world and make disciples of every nation baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. We commonly and rightly refer to those passages as the Great Commission. The Great Commission to go out into the world and to make disciples of all people. And we recognize that that commission falls upon the shoulders, or maybe we should say in the hands, of every Christian. But we also recognize that that commission is not necessarily an easy one in which to fulfill. In fact, sometimes it's incredibly difficult. And yet it is a commission that our Lord took very seriously. Luke 19.10, Jesus said, The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. You could consider that to be a purpose statement for the life and for the ministry of Jesus. Jesus took making disciples and saving souls very, very seriously, regardless of how difficult it is or may have been at different times. And so it's a, it's a commission, it's a, a command that we should take seriously as well. Now, as it pertains to this great commission, we have this parable that Steve read for us a moment ago in Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 29, and this parable is known by a number of different names. Some refer to it as the parable of the secret seed. Some refer to it as the parable of the growing grain. It really doesn't matter what you call it, but there are some very important truths to be gleaned from these few verses. It might interest you to know that this is the only parable which is found only in the book of Mark. 
It's unique to the book of Mark. You'll not find it in Matthew, Luke, or John. You'll only find it in Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 29. And this parable, though relatively unknown, reminds us of some very important things. For example, it reminds us that there are some limitations as to what we as human beings can do. There are some limitations as to what we have in our hands and within our power as it pertains to serving the Lord and as it pertains to fulfilling the Great Commission. It reminds us that ultimately all things lay in the hands of God. And so this morning I want us to take some time to consider the parable and its lessons together. First of all, let's look at the context of the parable. The context of the parable. In Mark chapters 2 and 3 we find Jesus dealing with a number of different controversies, mostly related to the false understanding of the Sabbath and its laws that belong to the Pharisees. You'll notice in Mark chapters 2 and 3 that just about every controversy that Jesus has has something to do with the Sabbath and the restrictions that the Pharisees had placed upon it. But then in Mark chapter 3, the chapter ends with a discussion about family. The crowd gathers round and some cry out to Jesus and tell him that his family was present. Your mother and your brothers are here and Jesus will make this statement in Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. In other words, my family are those who are what? Obedient to the Lord's command. That's Mark chapter 3 and verse number 35. But then we have Mark chapter 4 and verse number 1. You see, by this time, as Jesus goes on teaching and preaching, he has had, uh, he has had confrontation after confrontation in chapters 2 and 3 with those who reject him. But now, on the other side of those confrontations, we have Jesus in Mark 4 and verse number 1 who is preaching to a great multitude of people. So great, in fact, that Jesus had to get in a boat and he had to back away from the land just a little bit so that everyone could see him and so that everyone could hear him. But what we're going to find about this great multitude of people as the uh, word of God continues its narrative is that there wasn't really a great difference between many of this multitude in Mark 4 and verse 1 and the Pharisees who rejected him in Mark chapters 2 and 3. Jesus is going to highlight that fact with a number of parables in Mark chapter 4. And I want you to notice that as you look at Mark chapter 4, from a bird's eye view, there is an emphasis on seed and on sowing seed. In fact, in 34 verses in Mark chapter 4, there are no less than 15 references to seed and to seed being sown. There's the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4 verses 1 through 9, and then its explanation in Mark chapter 4 verses 13 to 20. Four kinds of soil, Jesus describes. A sower went out to sow, he says, and as he went out sowing his seed, his seed fell on four different kinds of soil. There is the There is the wayside soil. There is the rocky or the stony ground. There is the thorny soil. And then there's the good ground. And of course, all of these different types of soil represent different types of hearts and how those hearts will be receptive to the message of the gospel, which is the seed that is sown. 
So we have the seed that is sown, the message of the gospel in the parable of the sower and its explanation in verses 1 through 9 and then verses 13 to 20. And then in between all of this, we have in verses, in verses uh, 21 through 25, we have a metaphor and a proverb. A metaphor and a proverb. There is the metaphor of the lamp that is brought Jesus asked the question, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed or is it not to be set on a lampstand? What he's doing in Mark chapter 4 verses 21 through 25 is he is elaborating on Mark chapter 4 verses 10 through 12. You see, we have the giving of the parable of the sower in the first nine verses and then we have its explanation beginning in verse 13 and then in between these two, we have Jesus explaining why it is that he teaches in parables in the first place. And he says in Mark chapter 4, verses 10 and following, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. In Mark chapter 4, verse 21 and following, as he talks about the lamp, the point is that the purpose of parables was to make the truth of God as clear as possible. That's the responsibility of the sower. That's the responsibility of the presenter. But then he talks about, in verse 24 and 25, he talks about a, a proverb having to do with a measure. With what measure you meet, it will be given back to you, he says. And this emphasizes the responsibility of the hearer. I want you to notice that all of these things tie right back to Mark 4 and verse 1. We have confrontation in Mark 2 and 3, rejection, Mark 2 and 3, and then we get to Mark 4 and verse 1, and it appears that the tide is turning because we have a great multitude of people that are gathered to listen to him, but not so fast. Because slowly... But surely, that great multitude of people is going to become smaller and smaller and smaller. Why? Because some of those represent the wayside soil. Some of them are the stony ground. Some of them are the thorny, thorny ground. Only a few are represented by the good soil. And so Jesus teaches in parables, and the reason is because he wanted to make his message as clear as possible, and those who were willing to hear and listen, their knowledge and their understanding of God and his will, it will grow. Then we have in Mark chapter 4, verses 30 to 32, the parable of the mustard seed. Jesus will liken the kingdom of God to a mustard seed, the smallest of the seeds, but it grows and becomes great in size, and the of course, the message is that the kingdom of God will start small and seemingly insignificant, but then it will grow and it will become more, it will become larger and greater than any man could ever imagine. So we have the seed that is sown. We have the different kinds of hearts that are going to hear it and how they're going to receive it. We have the truth that says that the, we have the, the uh, uh, parable rather of the light that says look tr the truth has to be made clear and then the responsibility of how it's received falls upon the hearer and listen the kingdom of God regardless of all of the different kinds of soils that there are the kingdom of God is going to grow to be great now in the middle of all of this we have our parable Mark chapter 4 verses 26 through 29 let's look now at the parable itself Jesus says this 
The kingdom of God, Mark 4, 26, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, after, the full, after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts it in the sickle because the harvest is come. You know, farming takes a lot of time and a lot of patience and a realization that there are only so many things that are under your control. A farmer, for example, might take the time to go out and acquire all of the proper equipment. He goes and he prepares the soil, he plants the seed, he waters and he fertilizes the ground, he waters and fertilizes the seed, but then what does he have to do? But then he has to trust the Lord to bless it with growth. So look at Mark chapter 4, verses 26 to 29. Jesus takes that very principle and he applies it to the kingdom of God Jesus talks about a farmer who goes and he scatters his seed on the ground. And you'll notice in verse 27 and verse 28, it says that he sleeps by night and he rises by day. Day by day passes. And what's the farmer doing? He's waiting. He is waiting to see the fruit of his labor. He's done everything that he can do. Now it falls into the Lord's hands. In fact, you'll notice in verse number 28 that Jesus says that the earth yields crop, quote, by itself. It might interest you to note that the word by itself in the original language of the New Testament is the word that gives us our English word automatically. The idea is that the seed grows automatically, meaning what? Well, it reminds us that God created seed with the ability to bring forth fruit after its own kind. Remember Genesis chapter 1? God designed seed to sprout and to grow roots and to mature and to produce fruit. And here's the point. The farmer has no control over that process. Jeremiah said, It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 26. Therefore, be patient, brethren. Be patient. James chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. Until the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits. For the precious fruit of the earth. Waiting patiently, he says, for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. The image of the farmer, the image of the farmer who sows his seed, reminds us that as it pertains to our responsibility as seed sowers, we prepare the ground, we sow the seed, we pull the weeds, we harvest the fruit, but we cannot force the fruit to grow. It is God who gives the increase. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 through 7. Remember, Paul asked the question, Who is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believe, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Paul said, Apollos watered, but what? God gives the increase. So this parable in Mark chapter 4, verses 26 to 29, is to remind us that there is only so much that is within our control But as it pertains to our responsibility to sow the seed for the kingdom of God, to work and to serve in his kingdom, we do our part and then we wait patiently and we trust the Lord to do his. Now let's consider some principles, some lessons that are to be learned from this parable. Number one, there is self-renunciation and humility. 
Lesson number one from this parable is the lesson of self-renunciation and humility. You see, in spite of all that the farmer does, it doesn't matter how much money he invests into the most current farming technology, he is still left with one sobering truth, and that is that he cannot, of himself, make the seed grow. You see, when we go out and we sow the seed of the kingdom, when we serve in the kingdom of our God... What we have to come to recognize is that the success of the seed does not depend upon my feeble efforts and thank God for it. Because after all, who am I? We sing songs all of the time. We recognize what the scripture teaches about our condition as human beings, our unworthiness to really be able to serve in the kingdom of God. Jesus said, after you've done all that you've commanded, all that you've been commanded, you're still what? unprofitable servant. You've only done that which was your duty, that which was your responsibility to do. Romans chapter 5, the Bible says, but when we were sinners, God commends his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. All of our efforts in sowing the seed of the kingdom of God are commanded and are good and are right, but ultimately the growth and the success of the seed, the growth and the success of the kingdom does not depend exclusively on me. Paul said, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency may be of God and not of us, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. It's the great irony, really, if you think about it. That we have within our hands God's word which contains this beautiful soul-saving message that, that God has in his, had in his mind from eternity. This message of the kingdom of God that, that God places within the hands of frail, f- uh, faulty human beings. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? So that whenever someone hears the message of God and whenever they see its fruit produced, they cannot attribute that back to the messenger. They glorify the one who gives the message. Paul said in Ephesians 3 and verse number 8, To me, who am the least of all saints, this grace was given, that I may preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 16, God came, Jesus came rather to save sinners of whom I am chief. In our evangelistic efforts, we must always exalt the message and the subject of the message and never the messenger. I sought to know nothing among you, Paul said, save Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2. We have to be careful as servants in the kingdom of God that we make sure that the spotlight is pointed in the right direction. This was a struggle, evidently, even for the Apostle Paul. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse number 7. As Paul talked about his thorn in the flesh, he told us that that thorn in the flesh was given to him to keep him grounded. Lest I be exalted above or beyond measure, Paul said, because of the amount of divine revelation that's been given to me, God has given me this thorn in the flesh. What does that mean? Translation, God wants me to stay humble. God has given me this thorn in the flesh, Paul says, so that I can always remember where the real spotlight is supposed to be. So that I'll always remember that as a God messenger, as God's messenger, I'm simply doing his work. Our sufficiency is of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. God gives the increase, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 6. God works in us, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. 
So whatever effort I may put forth in service to the kingdom of God, regardless of how great or how feeble, the most important thing for, re- for me to remember is the principle of self-renunciation and humility. The principle that says, it's not about me, but it's about God. It's not about me, but it's about the cross. And my responsibility as a servant is simply to hide behind the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ, giving glory and pointing people to him. Lesson number two. This parable teaches us the importance of patience. Look at verse number 28 again. The farmer plants his seed and he waters it and then he waits. And as the crop begins to grow, you'll notice that verse number 28 identifies the fact that it grows in phases. I've planted a garden a few times and it worked for a little bit until I ultimately killed it. I've killed everything I've ever tried to grow. But at least live long enough for me to see the process. You know, you plant the seed and before long you can see a small little part of the plant poking out of the ground. And then it grows and it grows and it grows and you have to wait. And every day you go outside with this excited anticipation. I wonder what it looks like today. I wonder how much it grew since I looked at it yesterday morning. Or in my case, since I looked at it five minutes ago. But we have to watch this process unfold and it takes time and it takes patience and that's exactly what the, uh, the passage, verse number 28, is describing. The earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, and after that the full grain in the head. He's talking about the process. What does that tell me? It tells me that I have to be patient. By your patience, possess your souls, Luke 21 and verse number 19. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Romans chapter 2 and verse number 7. Therefore, brethren, be patient. James chapter 5 and verse number 7. Patience is a very difficult virtue to come by. I think we would all agree. And yet it's one that is absolutely, absolutely required for our work in the kingdom of God. You see, we live in a result oriented world. We live in a world where the name of the game is get the result that is desired quicker today than you were able to get it yesterday. That's what this world is all about. And sometimes as we look at our work in the kingdom of God, we expect the same kind of thing. But more often than not, that is unrealistic. It takes time to cultivate soil. It takes time to nurture seeds so that it can grow. And for some, it may take even years. Just this weekend, I was catching up with an old friend and we were talking about uh, various things. And he told me the story about a man that obeyed the gospel in the congregation where he preaches. He described this man as sort of tongue-in-cheek as an 11th hour conversion. And what he meant by that is that for years... His wife and his family and his friends and those in the church, they studied with him and they prayed for him and they they planted the seed and they patiently watered and watered and watered and no one ever gave up. But not long before he died, he finally humbled himself and he obeyed the gospel and he became a Christian. That's not the only story of something like that happen. I know that there are many occasions like that that have happened throughout, throughout history, throughout time in the church of our Lord. But the point is that we have to be patient, that we can never give up. You've got to be patient when you plant the seed and when you do the Lord's work. Lesson number three, there's trust. 
trust. Again, when the farmer plants the seed, he does his part. But there's only so much that falls within the purview of the farmer. There's only so much that he can do. And he must trust God then to do his. Do you remember what Isaiah said of the word of God in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse number 11? God said of his word, my word will not return to me void. It will do and accomplish that which I intend for it to do. I want you to consider with me just for a few moments a great illustration of this principle. It's the principle that's found in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse number 20. And by the way, I hope that you've subscribed to the uh, Word of Life Bible Study podcast and you've been listening. We're studying through the book of Nehemiah. If you've not been listening to that, I encourage you to do so. What do we learn about Nehemiah in the first few chapters of this book? We learned that Nehemiah recognized that there was a great problem in Nehemiah chapter 1, and the problem was that the walls of Jerusalem were torn down and the city was in complete disarray. Nehemiah learned of that problem in Nehemiah chapter 1, and it broke his heart. And so he immediately bowed his head and bowed his knee in prayer to the Father, and he expressed to God in his prayer the brokenness and the tragedy that he, the brokenness rather, that he felt at the tragedy that had befallen his people. Then in Nehemiah chapter 2, he begins to put together a plan of action. He goes to Jerusalem. He looks around. He scouts. He writes down, what are we going to do? How are we going to rebuild this wall? He scopes out a plan. And then after he's done all of that, he talks to the people and he motivates them. And he says, here's the work that God has given us to do. Here's the plan of action. Now let's go do it. But there's one consistent theme that continues to show up throughout the chapters of Nehemiah, and it is the theme of patient trust. You see, Nehemiah had enemies. Nehemiah had trouble and difficulties. Anytime there's a plan and a work that's to be done, there are always going to be unforeseen difficulties that arise. And yet in all of that, Nehemiah kept this disposition. I want you to listen to Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 20. Nehemiah said, so I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. He's talking to Sanballat and Tobiah, the two that will show up in Nehemiah chapter 4 and Nehemiah chapter 5 with an all-out frontal assault at trying to hinder the work of God from being done. This is our first introduction to them in the book of Nehemiah at the end of chapter 2. They look at him and they look at the people, they ridicule them, they challenge them, and they try to get them to stop. And what does Nehemiah say? If I can paraphrase it, he says, try as you will. You're not going to make a stop. You're not going to be successful. Why? Because we serve God. And we're doing his work. And we trust in him. Brothers and sisters, as we serve in the kingdom of God, and as we sow the seed, and as we work and evangelize and try to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ into a world that needs it so badly, Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 20 and its principle is one that we should never forget. That we must always trust the God whose bidding we are involved in. That we must always trust his promises and his care and his providence, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 5, because God is faithful. Here's our fourth and final lesson. What does this parable teach us? 
Well, it teaches us about the importance of joy and contentment. Now, those of you who have been more successful at growing gardens than I have know more about this than I do. You get to the end of the growing season, and you can look back, and you can think with joy and with accomplishment and with contentment on all of the fruit that your garden produced. The best I've been able to do is get maybe one decent round of produce that grows, and then everything dies. But I've heard about this great feeling of joy and contentment and excitement and satisfaction, knowing that you've been able to, to eat the fruit of the, of the labor that you put forth. Listen, when it comes to our work in the kingdom of God, there has to be a sense of joy and contentment. There has to be this sense because the opposite is an attitude of, negative, uh, of negativity and simply being defeated. I was thinking last night about sports and about the, uh, the practice that started, I don't know how many years ago. I just refer to it as the participation trophy philosophy. Now bear with me just for a moment. I want to submit to you, and you think about this and see if I'm right or wrong. I want to submit to you that the participation trophy philosophy robs children of one very important opportunity. And it is the opportunity to develop a strong and competitive drive. Now, I'm not suggesting that our work in the kingdom of God is a competition, but here's what I am suggesting, and here's the connection. That not everything that we do in his service is going to turn out necessarily the way that we want it or the way that we hope that it will. And so therefore we have to have a strong drive and a determined attitude to keep on going. We can't allow ourselves to give up just because there's some sort of obstacle. We can't allow ourselves to get discouraged because we look around and say, well, listen, we've had X number of Bible studies and we've had this program and that program and we've been praying and things are just not turning out the way that we want them to. We can't have that kind of mentality. It's negative. It's defeatism. And it's also an improper view of what the work of God is all about in the first place. Go back to where we started. Mark chapter 4 and verse 2. A sower, what? Went out to sow. We have this great multitude that is gathered together, and you can imagine standing in the shoes of the disciples and them thinking, wow, look at all of these people. Our Lord really has a following. And Jesus saying, well, not so fast. Yes, there's a great multitude of people now, but let me tell you something about hearts. Hearts are represented by four different kinds of soil, and only one out of four, only 25% of those hearts can be classified as good. So what you have to remember is, number one, sow the seed. Number two, make it as clear and as plain as you can. And number three, our parable this morning after you've done all that you know to do, you trust God. You trust God, and he'll give the increase. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9. Now, as we come to the end of our time together this morning, we want to offer the Lord's invitation. And it may be that there's someone here that has not yet become a child of God. You've not yet become a Christian. 
I want you to know that the Bible teaches that God's desire is for every single person to be a Christian. He sent his son to die on the cross for that very fact, for that very reason. And here's what he says. He says that in order to become one of his children, that we have to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John 8 and verse 24. He says that we have to repent of our sins. That's a change of mind that leads to a change of action. We just change the way that we live. Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. He says that we have to confess our faith. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. And that we have to be baptized in water for the forgiveness of our sins. Acts 2 and verse number 38. And the Bible promises that if we're willing to do those things, that God will add us to the church. We'll be part of his family. Acts 2 and verse 47. Are you ready to make that step this morning? Are you a Christian this morning? But as you think about your life and as you reflect upon your work in the kingdom of God, do you find yourself discouraged? Do you find yourself losing sight of the fact that there's only so much that responsibility that God has placed within our hands and then there's also the responsibility that God has? There's his part. Have you lost focus of what the work of God is all about? Can we pray for you? Can we help you? Can we encourage you in some way? If so, then we invite you to come forward and let that be known while we 